You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread, and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways, and live, and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 548 of this podcast. Today is January 30th, 2023, and a Monday, and that was... Proverbs chapter 9, talking about the way of wisdom in contrast to the way of folly. And actually, I would say that nestled in between the way of wisdom and the way of folly is the audience. Those who might potentially listen to a correction and become wiser or scoff at a correction and be abusive towards those who would correct, who would instruct, who would reprove, who would teach. How we respond to correction demonstrates whether we are wise or whether we are foolish. And for that matter, what is a primary reason that people reject correction, reject instruction, It is that they are wise in their own eyes. They think themselves very wise. And there are a lot of ways that someone being self-impressed, haughty, lifted up, wise in their own eyes, can express itself. There are a lot of ways that that can come out. Sometimes we see scoffing, chortling, mocking. We might see abusive language, profanity. Insults, put-downs, personal attacks, 
crudity, cheap tricks, whereby the person who has just given the instruction is going to be associated with scatological language because we are regarding what they've just said as scat. We don't want to hear it. We want to flush it. We want it to be buried in a shallow grave in the backyard. And so we're going to talk about that person and talk about their ideas like all of the above are waste. And what is it that we mean when we say that this or that is a waste of time or a waste of breath? I've even heard the term and I laughed in the moment, but I'm thinking to myself now, I shouldn't have laughed. Oxygen thief. That is to say that somebody is doing something that's inconvenient to us, saying something that we find annoying or obnoxious or that we're irritated by. And we say that even just for them to breathe is a waste. And that is not very far removed from entertaining the notion that it would be better for them not to breathe. And that's the slippery slope, that attitude of don't correct me. It starts with marginalizing the other person. And if they persist, it'll escalate to more and more abuse. And at a certain point, those who do not want to be corrected, instructed, proven wrong, if they don't allow themselves to be corrected, they get increasingly hostile. They get increasingly either actively aggressive or passively aggressive. When they are actively aggressive, they might become physically violent to shut the other person up. We've seen this all across the U.S. We've seen this in recent years on college campuses. And you think to yourself, if these students are not there to be instructed to be taught things that they don't already know, then why are they there? Well, the answer is very simple. They're there to get a little piece of paper that says that they can go and make money and they can go more to the point and do what they want. And if you're telling them that some of what they want is bad and will not come to a good end, it'll actually hurt them very badly hurt the other people in their lives very badly. If you're telling them that, then you are actually threatening the very root of their reason for being in that place of higher learning as they see it. The higher learning that they want is how to get more pleasure for themselves for less output. That's all it really means if they would go and get a education and that enables them to get a higher paying job. What we mean by that is that they will make more money, which they can use to get all the other things that they want and that will please them. They will be able to get more money for less effort. But if there's a hidden cost to some of what they want, more than just money, and if they, no matter how much education they get, are still going to have to pay that higher cost because some of the decisions that they have in mind to make once they have the means as they see it are just inherently costly and there's no workaround, there's no avoidance of the cost of those actions or those lifestyles or those behaviors. It can be a very upsetting thing to have what they thought was going to make them happy put into question. 
That can be a very destabilizing thing. Here they thought that was going to make them happy, and they haven't gotten it yet, but you've just told them that is not actually going to make them happy. And so what does one do? If those who might react badly to being told the things that would make them happy are not actually going to make them happy, or they can't be had in the way that they are wanting to have them, what do you and I do? What do we say if we care about those people? Do we say nothing? Let's suppose we say nothing and we allow them to continue on as they are and they come to a bad end and we watch or maybe we turn away. And maybe this is part of the reason why hearts grow cold because the resolution is to not interrupt other people pursuing bad ends because we don't want to be abused. We don't want to be mocked, marginalized, cast out threatened, punished, either in active-aggressive ways or in passive-aggressive ways. It's a painful thing to realize that the person we're talking with, that we're trying to intercede on behalf of, with regards to their interests, would abuse us rather than thank us. And so I think, as Christians, we really need to ponder what we speak up about to whom and how, and more to the point, how we think about correction. We need to think carefully about whether we avoid confrontation in a selfish way. You know, think about this. Think about a marriage. A man and a woman get married. They've fallen in love and they want exchange vows before friends and family and the public and God, and they do. And in the first year, they have a child. And then they realize that newborn children do not know that they're supposed to sleep all night. <laughs> they don't know that. They're not born knowing that. They need to be taught. They have to be trained. And some of the ways that you are going to train a very young child have nothing whatsoever to do with persuasion. They have everything to do with routines, stability, security, peace, being well-fed, having a, a warm, dry place to sleep, to rest, resting at the right times with some regularity. And let's say a few years go by, and the man and his wife are now getting sleep again. But over the course of the time where they were not getting sleep, they realized that the honeymoon phase being over, it doesn't mean that they no longer love one another, they no longer enjoy one another, but it means that they have now seen a more complete picture of what marital happiness is going to entail. And involve. It is not only enjoyment, it is sometimes work, challenge, sacrifice, setting aside of what we want in the immediate short term in the interest of serving the other person, loving them well, protecting them, 
honoring them. But a few years go by, and they've seen that, and even though now their infant child is sleeping through the night, nevertheless, even if they are sleeping through the night, they've seen a different side of themselves, and they've seen a different side of their significant other. And now this little child has to be taught how to speak, how to walk, how to eat properly, solid foods, to have a balanced diet, how to read, how to write, how to do math, how to be respectful of the people around them, how to have good manners, how to use a bathroom, (laughs) all sorts of things. And yes, there's still an aspect of the instruction there that has to do with creating the right conditions, establishing routines. But also, increasingly, as your child is more and more verbal, your job as a parent, the job of this young couple as mother and father, shifts to explaining and not just ordering and not just doing for, but increasingly guiding explaining, training the mind to understand. Here is not just what to do. Here's why you ought to do these things. And how would it be if we said that a mother and a father should not correct their child if their child might be upset to be told, no, you cannot have that, or yes, you must do this thing. How would it be if we said, anytime the child might be upset, that's proof that a parent should not correct their child, should not instruct their child. If that child is going to react badly, well, then the parent should stop everything and reassess and reevaluate and do some soul searching. Now, some parents do this, but let's put them off to the side and let's just ask the question In the abstract for a moment, if the parent backs off and does not instruct, correct, train, rebuke, that child is going to be very foolish. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And what Proverbs says is that the rod of correction will drive that folly from the child. And you might say, well, okay, but children are children. You got to let kids be kids. They'll learn. And what I would say is yes and no. A two-year-old playing in the street when cars are going back and forth doesn't need to learn the hard way not to play in the street. They need a spanking if they're not going to obey their father and their mother who say, you cannot go out in the street. But on the other hand, as children get older, as you are endeavoring to persuade, not just to command, not just to do for them, but to persuade them how they should do these things, there is a place for letting people do what they will do, letting children who are growing into adulthood make mistakes or do foolish things and suffer the consequences, because those consequences will be instructive in their own way. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to create a situation in which everyone is 
so terrified of making a mistake that they can't do anything. They're paralyzed. They can't make decisions. They're indecisive. They do nothing. To do nothing is to do something, actually. To say nothing is to say something. To say nothing is to say that it is not that important. It is not critical for us to say something. To do nothing is to actually communicate that nothing needs to be done right now. And if that's true, well then, good. And if that's not true, if something does need to be done, then to do nothing could be apathy. It could be selfishness. It could be a lack of genuine love and care and concern, not only for that other person, but for God who has put us in a position to guide, direct, correct, instruct, persuade. But how would it be if the parents of that three-year-old child, rather than being hands-off, for one, do an inventory on what they've learned about their spouse and themselves, and more to the point, what they're learning as they watch this child of both of them grow. Both of those parents do an inventory and they say, sometimes I don't handle things the way that I should. Other times my spouse doesn't handle things the way that they should. My wife doesn't handle things the way that she should. My husband doesn't handle things the way that he should. They both alike come to those realizations and yet they go back to God's word and God's word corrects them. God himself, therefore, corrects them because the Bible is God's word. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And so they profit. They derive a benefit from being corrected. They're corrected by reading God's word, and they're corrected, if they're believers, by the Holy Spirit that resides with them and in them. And in turn, with God as their example to follow, they correct their child and train their child and provide for their child and protect their child. Because in some sense, that's obedience to God. In another sense, that's communicating a picture of how God relates to us. In another sense, that is setting an example for how we should relate to God. All of the above, all at the same time. But that's wise. That's wisdom. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. Proverbs 9.1 says, there's a completeness to the imagery of seven pillars, by the way. Like seven days in a week, she's got a, if we could say, full house or complete house. She's got food ready. She's got drink ready. She's got young women, servants to send out. She doesn't just keep it to herself. She invites others to participate in wisdom. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here to him who lacks sense. She says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. And notice here the contrast between verse 6 in Proverbs 9 and verse 18 in Proverbs 9. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight versus, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. The guests of who? The woman folly. Life or death 
Are we correctable? Are we persuadable? Are we teachable? The answer to that question determines whether we are going to live or die. I think also, too, that when we read this, this is not just for our own personal consumption. This is supposed to frame our attitude towards other people, which is to say you should make value judgments on the reactions of other people to correction. You should. If somebody is wise in their own eyes, in Proverbs, but you never can make a determination on who that is in your vicinity, where do you go with that? It's all theory. Where's the benefit? If it's all just things to think about and it bears no relation to our lives, then it is a waste of time. And you should stop. Do something more profitable, quite frankly. The Apostle Paul gets at this in the New Testament when he says that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then we, that is, we Christians, we are to be pitied above all men. If there is no resurrection of the dead, if Christ is not even risen, then we are not going to rise with him. And so then we should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Live it up. What does it matter? We're missing out. But notice that (laughs) the antidote, the remedy, the corrective for eat, drink, and be merry is not to say food and beverage, happiness, celebration are undesirable. Not in and of themselves, they're not. That's not true, actually. What would be a better way to frame it is to say, those things are not going to last. Not without wisdom, not without correction, not without righteousness, not without holiness. They're not going to last. You know, I was talking in our last episode about Dr. Huberman and Dr. Peterson doing this podcast interview Neuroscience meets psychology. I was watching this episode, and one of the things that I keep thinking about from their back and forth is, one, there's really only one currency, dopamine. That is, the dollar only has value relative dopamine. The yen, the yuan, the rupee, the peso, the franc, the... Euro, all of these, they only have value relative dopamine. That is to say, we are motivated by what our brains are convinced will bring us happiness. When somebody gets addicted to something that is destroying them, their brain is just stuck in this loop where it wants to keep on getting this thing because what it really wants is dopamine. It wants that happiness hormone. And your brain has associated happiness with this thing. And this is part of why fasting is helpful, effective, recommended, not just for Christians, but for everyone. Although I think it's only really, really, truly effective for Christians. (laughs) It's like going through a calibration procedure, but you're calibrating against the wrong values, something that's not actually zeroed. If you're not fasting as a Christian, if you're fasting as some other religious observer or adherent, then 
calibrating to something that's off-cal. But for the Christian, if it all comes back to dopamine and what our brains are convinced will cause the most happiness, well then, Proverbs 9 reads a bit differently. What Paul writes in the New Testament about the salvation or lack thereof, whether there is any resurrection from the dead. Now that all comes into clearer focus. But here's the thing. If other people cannot be persuaded, so we're not even going to try. We're not even going to try and reason with them about what will make them happier in the long run. And here's how we know. And here's this versus this. And this would be more profitable. If they cannot be persuaded, either because we refuse to even try or B, because they are scoffers. We do try, but then they abuse us. Well, then, what do we do? You know, I've been thinking about debate and whether people are open to being persuaded and whether people should be. And this is closely connected to the whole business of election, predestination, and free will, our biblical training group that we're hosting on Friday nights is a guide to Christian theology with Professor Gary Brashears. And that is a question that keeps coming up because it's kind of a big deal. Now, that doesn't mean that I necessarily know I am not persuaded fully, but I hope I am open to being persuaded. And that's one of the things that I keep thinking about with regards to election and predestination, the Calvinist view versus the Arminian view. If we believe that it is all just God electing who will have the ability to be reasoned with or to hear the gospel message and believe, if that's all there is to it, then it doesn't just have implications for evangelism. That's one of the things that we were talking about in our biblical training group is, you know, some people go way too far with the Calvinistic take on election, predestination, free will, to where they say, and this is not conjecture. This is, I am told something my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, has actually heard hyper-Calvinists he knows communicate. But if Calvinism is true, then we actually don't even need to do evangelism because those who are going to be saved are going to be saved. And um, we don't want to take any of God's glory. Come on. Methinks you were studying very, very hard a few key verses so that you could ignore a lot of others. And that might not be because you are so pious and so wise and so reverential. It could be because you're wise in your own eyes and because you're lazy and because you're proud because you're disobedient and you want to have your cake and eat it too, being disobedient, but also getting the credit for being obedient somehow, oddly enough. If you can conceive of a workaround for obedience with regards to evangelism, with regards to outreach, with regards to always being ready to give a reason, an answer for the reason of the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect... Hmm. But see, that's just it, right? That's right there. My concern, one, that I would be persuadable. I want to be persuadable. I don't want to be wise in my own eyes. I don't want 
to be a fool who will thank someone for trying to correct me or instruct me by abusing them. I don't want that. I don't want to be that way. Also, I don't want other people to be that way because that's not good for them. That will not have a good end for anyone except by God's grace that he works all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But how can it be that somebody is wise in their own eyes and they love folly and they also say they love God? I I don't know. God knows. I guess we'll find out. But if some go too far with a Calvinistic view of election, predestination, free will, salvation, then doesn't that also have ramifications for how persuasive we try to be, not just with regards to salvation and the gospel narrowly defined, but with regards to any good thing? If we are not being persuasive, maybe it's because a lot of us don't think that man is capable of being persuaded. But I would just challenge that for a few reasons. One, because we're told, Old Testament and New Testament, that we should be reasonable, that we should be open to reason, that we should be correctable, that correction is a good thing, that there is such a thing as somebody being wise in contrast to somebody who's foolish. It's not all or nothing. It's not a light switch on, off, yes, no. And it's not theoretical on the side of wisdom. And then there are no actually wise people. No, some people are wise. Some people are foolish. In fact, far too many people are foolish. But how do the simple people in between, who I would call the undecided voters, how do the simple people in between get related to by wisdom in Proverbs 9 and the woman folly in exactly the same way? Both wisdom and folly call out to the simple. Come on in. Now, their sales pitches are very different. Notice with regards to wisdom. Wisdom has built her house. Whose house? Her house. She owns it. What's one of the ways that you know? Because she has hewn her seven pillars. She did. She's a very capable woman, apparently. And that's all right. Proverbs 31 describes a very capable woman. She has slaughtered her beasts. She didn't call for the butcher. Hey, come over here and do this for me. No, she did it herself. It's a lot cheaper, actually. You can save a lot of money processing your own animals, your own livestock and wild game. She has slaughtered her beasts to turn them into food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. Again and again, it's her house, her seven pillars, her beasts, her wine, her table, her young women. She has sent out to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. (laughs) Which you got to think if this were literally the flyer that was stapled to the telephone poles, how would that be? Are you simple? Come on in. (laughs) On the one hand, I want to say, no, thank you. Because if I come on in, then I'm basically agreeing that I'm simple. But on the other hand, that food does smell good. (laughs) It smells really good. Some of that smoked brisket, some burgers. All right. All right. Call me simple. I'm also hungry. 
if you fast forward to the woman Folly. Now, what's interesting here, she is seductive and knows nothing. She knows nothing. She's a pretty face. She dresses provocatively and enticingly. Also, not a smart girl. Not well-read. Not thoughtful. Not intelligent. Not capable, really, ultimately, because knowledge is power. And if you don't know anything, then you really can't do anything either. But she sits. Wisdom has built her house, hewn her pillars, slaughtered her beasts, mixed her wine, set the table, sent out her young women. The woman, Folly, sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by. So she doesn't have young women to send out. She's all about herself. and She wouldn't want competitors. Or she doesn't have the means because she doesn't do anything except look pretty. So she's going to go by herself. And you know what? Part of how she's going to make up for the fact that she doesn't have young women to send out is she's just going to be really loud. She's got to raise her voice. What does she say to those who pass by who are going straight on their way? They're behaving. They're at least not doing anything wrong. They might not be killing it. They might not be conquering the world, but they're at least, you know, doing okay. Not getting into trouble. She says the exact same thing that the woman wisdom has sent her young women to say. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. The exact same message. And let me make a point. If that's all we pay attention to is that both alike are saying the same thing. Whoever is simple, turn in here. Ah, see, well, there's no difference, right? There's no difference. They're both women. They're both sending out invitations. I'm not going to go to either. <laughs> or I'll flip a coin. Or uh, <laughs> you, What does it matter? Who cares? But it doesn't stop there. To him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Mmm. Stolen water. So we're talking... I mean, not high-value commodity, not in my way of thinking anyways. When the woman wisdom is mixing wine, her wine, not stolen wine, her wine. She's mixing wine and then inviting those who are simple, those who lack sense, it says. The exact same phrasing. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways. Oh, wait a second. Whoa, whoa, it was bad enough when you pointed out that I am simple and that I lack sense when you called to me. I mean, imagine being the guy. You're just walking down the street. And here comes some young gal. She's like, hey, you look simple. <laughs> you, you look like you're not too bright. <laughs> Would you like to come to a party? <laughs> Hey, you look like you lack sense. Come on over. <laughs> and again, I mean, if if you don't just leave it at that, right? That I mean, you, you probably want to sweeten the pot a little bit. If you say, hey, free food and drinks on the house. A lot of guys are going to shrug and say, okay, well, yeah, 
If the entrance fee is me admitting that I lack sense, fine. <laughs> please pass. Please pass the uh, brisket. <laughs> the woman Folly, though, I, she has a house. Okay, she sits at the door, but there's not. There's no indication that she's even got food and drink that's her own. She steals it, and she says that's better, right? Stolen water is sweet, and if you're not simple, if you don't lack sense, if you have any sense, then you should ask, well, if stolen water is sweet, how much sweeter is water that's just yours, and you just own it? And how do you get some water that you yourself own? Bread eaten in secret? And this is, you got to realize, all allegorical and metaphorical and symbolic, the water and the bread are not water and bread, in other words. But bread eaten in secret is pleasant. In other words, that naughtiness factor to taking what doesn't belong to you and enjoying it, that, isn't that fun? Verse 18 concludes, he, that is the one who lacks sense, and who is simple, he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So here's the thing. If she is loud, brash, seductive, yes, but also a know-nothing, and she doesn't have her own food and drink, but she's enticing you with, hey, come take things that don't belong to you, where do you think that's going to end for you? If all of a sudden the thing that doesn't belong to her is taken from you. What if you're the one who gets robbed of your life? Ooh, whoa, something just shifted there. Something just clicked. And that's where if we really love our neighbors, we love ourselves. We need to start asking if we're not trying to persuade our neighbor and instruct and correct our neighbor, is that because we ourselves are not persuadable, instructable, teachable? If we're not willing to try and correct others when they are headed to destruction, then have we been instructed? Have we been corrected? Do we have that love for others because he first loved us? Maybe the reason we're not extending grace and trying to be persuasive to other people of good ideas, wise ways of living is a kind of grace. Or what would we say? Would we say that it would be more gracious of God to leave us in our sin and folly that leads to death? Would that be more gracious of God? Or instead, do we say that the grace of God is in part the corrective, the call to repentance, the rebuke even? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do we say that even the corrective is grace? That is God's love for us, that he, as a father, sees that we are in error or we are being enticed, we are being seduced, we are being misled, we are being deceived. And he says, stop, no, don't, turn away. Or he gives us his word. And we read passages like Proverbs 9, the way of wisdom. Wisdom has built her house. If this is just a solo private thing, then why is the whim, why why is the woman wisdom sending her young women out 
to invite people from the town. If this is just a solo thing, why is she opening it up to the public? Come on in. And here's the thing. She's not just offering them bread and wine. She's saying, leave your simple ways. There's a footnote at BibleHub.com where I've got this passage pulled up right now. For verse 6, when it says, leave your simple ways, another way that could have been translated is leave the company of the simple. In other words, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. If you're hanging out with simpletons who love being foolish and they hate being corrected, well, then you should probably rethink your associations. You should probably get better friends who love wisdom, for instance. She says, leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. So this is not just a head knowledge sort of a thing. This is a practical application. You will live differently kind of call. This is a call to action, but it's verbal because how do we know unless we're taught? How do we turn unless we are corrected and unless somebody calls us to correction. The woman folly is definitely doing that. And if the woman wisdom doesn't, because she's been told, well, nobody's open to those things, or we get stuck on verse seven to verse 12, whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abused. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer. Okay. All right. Fine. Is everybody a scoffer now? Do we just assume? Is that our default? That we assume everyone is a scoffer? Also verse, also verse 8 says, reprove a wise man. Ooh. You know, what if that was our sales pitch? And we said, you know what? Those who lack sense, those who are simple, come on in. And we will know that you are actually wise when you come on in. And you listen to the correction. You will have proved that you are wise, not by insisting that you can't be corrected. That's how you prove that you are a scoffer and wicked. And that's not to say that all correction is correct, because sometimes the person who lacks sense is trying to issue the corrective and they don't know what they're talking about. But that's where also other passages come into play that have to do with persuasion, that have to do with reasonableness. And what is at root with reasonableness, the capacity to be reasonable, or if you will, the capacity to reason, or if you will, thinking back and forth together. Come, let us reason together, God says. And if God invites us to reason together with him, what? Will we say that we are not going to reason with one another? You know, I was thinking of Romans 14 also this week. The law of liberty is talked about by the Apostle Paul, also passing judgment on one another, not causing one another to stumble. Starting in verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant 
of another. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, which is an echo, by the way, of Proverbs 9. If I may just pause here for a moment on verse 4, go back to Proverbs 9 and look at verse 12. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. On your own head be it is a phrase that might come to mind in such situations. But picking back up in Romans 14, verse 5, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the other who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And let's just recap here. One, the real problem has to do with making others stumble. I mean, think about that. Think think about what that actually looks like and what that means and the effect in James in the New Testament. It starts out, that letter from James, half-brother of Jesus, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. But, but, (laughs) can't stop there. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now think about this. That's really what the stumbling has to do with, is we are actually creating a condition in other people 
where they are double-minded. Why is that a problem, that they would be double-minded? Why is that going to make them miserable, unhappy, frustrated? Because it's going to make them unproductive and unstable. There was a poster I bought way back when, I think when I was in college at Cedarville University, before Lauren and I got married. It was a small poster. I might have found it at Walmart. But it was a picture of a bald eagle, and it had some text, a caption that read, if you chase two rabbits, both will get away. And then down below, it said something like Native American proverb or some such. Whether that was, in fact, a Native American proverb doesn't really matter because it makes intuitive sense. There's a common sense quality to the idea that if you chase two rabbits, both will get away. That's the trouble with being double-minded. That's what it means to be unstable in all your ways. If you are double-minded, then you can't make decisions. You can't get anything accomplished. What is it that Jesus says when he says not to make a vow? He says, don't swear by anything. Don't even swear by the hairs on your head. <laughs> you can't You can't swear. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And what does that mean? That means be very careful what you commit to because if your answer is yes and no all at the same time, then whoever was wanting that answer from you now has no ability to rely on you because they're not sure, because you're not giving them a straight answer. If the answer is yes and no and, well, I, you know, maybe all of the above all at the same time, without a vision, the people perish. In Proverbs, it says that a fool provokes his neighbor and then says, I was only joking. That is going to cause strife because you are introducing double-mindedness in the person that you're supposed to be working together with. Presumably, they have some kind of a claim on your participation and your support, or they thought they did, or it was a it was an advantage to you for them to think that they did. And this also is what Jesus is talking about when he likens the Pharisees in the New Testament to storm clouds that don't bring water. They look like they should. And if you could really use some moisture for your farming operation, or even just to have a drink of water yourself, you see a storm rolling and, and you think, man, that's about time. Your hopes start going up and up and up and up. And then if the storm passes and it doesn't drop water on you, you are actually more disappointed. You overshoot the level of happiness and contentment that you were at before you saw those storm clouds coming. You overshoot. You go negative in your dopamine cycle, if you will, to borrow some of Huberman and Peterson's conversation. You go negative. And this is part of where people become depressive, anxious, frustrated, have anger management issues. This is part of where these things come from. It's not all just in your head. If we are surrounded by people who are not letting their yes be yes and their no be no, if we ourselves are not being called to wisdom and yet are being called by the woman folly, if we are asking for wisdom but we're not believing 
and then we're becoming double-minded, unstable in all of our ways. Well, of course, of course we would be anxious, fearful, frustrated, angry, and then ultimately severely depressed, just giving up, not even trying anything at all. And that last option, that despair, that is the opposite of what we as Christians should be providing to one another. That's the opposite. That's the opposite of encouraging. That's the opposite of edifying. It really, it really is. The task we have as Christians, when we're told to edify and to build up one another and to not stumble one another, to not trip each other up, comes back to this idea of pursuing what is good, doing good works, believing what is true, getting wisdom. What is wisdom? It is discerning the correct relationship between the facts, the knowledge, knowing what to do with the knowledge. If there's nothing to do with the knowledge, well, then that's not wisdom. That's just trivia. But the knowledge, if it is put to a good purpose, a good end, that's when you know that it's wisdom. We should want wisdom. Why? Because wisdom is life-giving. And its opposite, folly, is deadly. Now, what we don't want to do is we don't want to argue and debate with one another about trivial things that don't matter. And we don't want to argue about either trivial or important things from a bad motive because we're wise in our own eyes. But also, we don't want to refuse to reason with one another and therefore thereby demonstrate that we're wise in our own eyes because we're not willing to be persuaded. And also, we're not willing to do the work to try and persuade others. You know, what does it imply if we refuse to try and persuade anybody because we say, well, don't cast your pearls before a swine? Is everybody swine? Surely not. So maybe we need to determine when we're talking about swine and when we're talking about people who are simple, who need to be called for and encouraged and persuaded, and yes, even incentivized. I mean, how would it be if Jesus had not preached and taught publicly because the Pharisees might be there? How would that be? So clearly, Jesus, by his example, is demonstrating that that's not, that's not the proper application of his command to not cast your pearls before swine, to not give to dogs what is holy. It's not the proper application to say, you don't ever speak in public, you don't ever speak in a public square about the things of God because some might mock you, might threaten you, might abuse you. Or what would we say? Jesus told us, don't cast your pearls before swine, and then he was casting his pearls before swine? No. But again, we need wisdom to know what this looks like in a practical sense. We need wisdom, and we need to be reasoning together in order to be wise. We need to be asking God and believing, not doubting, that God will give us wisdom. We need to be correctable, teachable, humble, not wise in our own eyes, if we love life. And we should. Life has value because God gave us life. Also, too, if we sometimes despair of life itself, have we perhaps forgotten that fact that life has purpose, our individual life, yes, even our lives, but also life in a general sense, life has purpose because God 
doesn't make mistakes. He didn't misspeak. He wasn't wasting his time to make us, to create us. And he has a good purpose, which we might not know fully, fine, but we know in part. And it must be enough that we can know in part and that we can get wisdom and that we're called to ask him for wisdom. That must be enough because that's what he's called us to. Do we believe that? We need to believe that. I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.